Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Robert Half. Robert Half research indicates nine out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you are feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Their specialized recruiting professionals engage with their proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, they know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Cars.com. Have you heard about the Your Garage feature on Cars.com? Here's how it works. You add your car to your garage to track its market value and cash in when the time is right to sell. Track both your car's historical and projected value. When it's time to sell, easily secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on Cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with Your Garage on Cars.com. So, Leva, um, a college friend of yours once told me that your favorite meal during college was a dill pickle, beef jerky, and grape soda. Is that true? I did indeed have that for breakfast. <laughs> but to tell you the truth, it sounded better before I ate it than after. Steve Levitt, my Freakonomics friend and co-author, an esteemed economist at the University of Chicago, has an extremely refined palate. All right, so you got beef jerky, you got dill pickle. What, what, what are your favorite foods? Like, what are your favorite places? Like, if you could drive across America and pick any place to stop and eat, what's it going to be? You know, I love the Billy Goat Tavern. It's the uh, cheap place that was made famous in the 19, probably 70s, on Saturday Night Live with the cheeseburger, cheeseburger, no Pepsi Coke. No Coke, Pepsi. Anyway, they have an incredible ribeye steak sandwich. Uh, pretty much the cheaper the food, the better. There's almost no fast food that I don't adore. So KFC? Yeah, I like KFC, burgers, Chipotle. I kill for Chipotle. So how would you describe your palate? Probably underdeveloped. <laughs> you know, but it's good. I mean, the thing is, it's a wonderful, wonderful gift to like cheap food. I mean, some people just happen to like expensive food, and then they're unhappy most of the time, or else they spend all their money on food. But if you just, by chance, are born loving cheap food, then you can eat, you know, everything that you love. Cheeseburger? <laughs> now, how much, how much do you like wine? Wine I do not like at all. From American Public Media and WNYC, this is Freakonomics Radio. Today, why wine experts should just put a cork in it, and why having an untrained palate can save you lots of dough. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner. Good wine, we're told, is the province of smart, superior people. They, they taste things on a whole nother level than people like you and me. Smelling a little minerality. Freshly cut apple. George Clinton. This funky sort of... Baby vomit but I have a question for you. Is that superiority deserved? The wines that experts love, the ones that bring out the natural beauty of the grape but aren't too funky, they cost a lot more. $450 a bottle. But are expensive wines really that much better than cheap wines? Or is it possible that developing your palate just mucks things up, complicates things? Maybe we'd all be better off if we had taste buds like Steve Levitt's. Kill for Chipotle. After graduate school, 
Levitt was invited to join an elite club at Harvard called the Society of Fellows. A junior fellow like him was paid a modest salary to work on his own research with few obligations other than a formal Monday night dinner with the senior fellows, who were some of the most remarkable scholars alive. People like you know, Amartya Sen and, and uh, Nobel Prize winning physicists and whatnot. And, and you sit around the table, and I think I believe the table was Oliver Wendell Holmes' table initially, and he, he gifted it to Society of Fellows. Over dinner, they engaged in witty, learned conversation. They ate venison, other fine food, and they drank expensive wine, bottle after bottle. To this budding young economist with the beef jerky taste and the grape soda budget, all that pricey wine, it wasn't doing him any good. He had a thought. Innocently, I mean, I, I, was, I was young. I didn't understand how the world worked. I thought like an economist. I suggested that perhaps we should have two tracks at the Society Fells. There would be the drinking track and the abstinence track. And for those of us who chose the abstinence track, because the cost of the wine was perhaps $60 per meal, that over the course of, of, of 50 weeks of the year, that would work out to be about $3,000, and they could add $3,000 to the paycheck of those of us on the abstinence path. And did you have any other uh, people in your abstinence camp, or was this just Levitt? Well, you know, it didn't really get that far because <laughs> uh, the reaction was quite negative. Levitt's the kind of person who likes to use data, not a personal agenda, to make his arguments. So... He set out to get some data, wine data. The wine they were drinking at these dinners cost five or ten times what a cheap bottle of wine cost. Was it really five or ten times better? He hatched a plan. The Society of Fellows held wine tastings from time to time. He suggested that the next one be his to organize. So I uh, worked with the wine steward to select two excellent bottles of wine, expensive bottles of wine, you know, probably close to $100 bottles of wine. And then I went to the liquor store that was down the street and I said, can I have the cheapest bottle of wine you have that, that was the same grape? I don't remember which grape it was. Levitt used four decanters. Into the first decanter, he poured one of the expensive bottles of wine. The other expensive wine went into decanter number two. In the third decanter, he poured the cheap wine, which cost around $8.00. And the fourth decanter, he repeated one of the expensive wines. So as far as the people knew, there were four different wines. And these were all wines that were coming out of the, the wine cellar of the Society of Fellows. So you're tricking them from the outset. You're, you're leading them to believe that the fourth, the cheap wine, is also from the wine cellar. I don't, you know, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> they swirled them a bit, sniffed them, and sipped. They wrote down their ratings. As he looked at the numbers, Levitt's cold economist heart warmed. The data could not have cooperated uh, more completely with my hypotheses. So for starters, the four wines uh, received almost identical ratings on average. Although there were a widespread among individuals, on average, as tallied it up, people did not prefer the expensive wines to the cheap wine. On top of that, and this was... The, the thing that I was hoping for and dreaming of but didn't believe it actually came to. It turned out when you made among individuals, if you compared how differently they rated any two of the wines that they had, it turned out that by a small margin, people actually rated the same wine from the same bottle but presented in a different decanter as being the most different among <laughs> the two wines. So, so the two wines that were absolutely identical 
when you looked at the, just the, the, the gap between the ratings that an individual gave to those wines, the gap was bigger than they did between the other wines, which actually were different. A few minutes after the tasting was over, Steve Levitt shared the results with the senior fellows. The jovial mood in the room suddenly went dark. <laughs> People realized they had been tricked, that there had been this cheap wine, the same wine was in twice, and they, and they really realized that the nature of the game had been somewhat different than what they thought. And when they heard the results, that collectively they had no ability to identify wines, they were not happy. <laughs> and in particular, there was one uh, senior fellow, so one of the professors at Harvard, who, who was quite uh, outspoken about his, his knowledge of wine. And he, he uh, loudly announced that he had a cold. Oh. Otherwise, he clearly could have made the distinctions. And he stormed from the room and, uh, and left, left the party prematurely. What was his discipline? I think for the sake of uh, anonymity, I, I should not reveal that particular piece of information. He what? was a humanist. He was a humanist. Not an economist, in other words. No, no. The opposite <laughs> of an economist. <laughs> so what does Levitt's evil little experiment teach us about wine? Maybe not all that much. It wasn't a very scientific tasting, really. Perhaps the Society of Fellows was just having an off night. The humanist had a cold, right? Or maybe this was just a group of people who didn't know as much about wine as they thought they knew. You'd never be able to pull this kind of stunt on wine experts, would you? On my team, we have a master sommelier, uh, two master of wine candidates, uh, four people that have been in the trade for many years. And these are sophisticated wine professionals. That's Brian DeMarco talking about the people that he gathered for a blind tasting of his own. Before we get to that, let's hear a little bit more about Brian. I specialize in helping customers, consumers, private collectors, and retailers and restaurants decide what wines to put on their list, what wines to collect, what wines to sell. And I have a small import business and wholesale company, and we distribute wine that we find all over Europe and South America in New York City. Cool. So you're almost a wine agent then, yeah, in a way, more than just an importer? In, in many ways, yes. Brian DeMarco is one of the people who decide what we drink. He goes to France, Italy, California, tastes wine fresh out of the tank. So he determines what's good or bad without any critics whispering sweet ratings into his ear. Then he puts his money where his taste buds are. He writes a check. Now, according to DeMarco, he makes as much money selling a $15 bottle of wine to a restaurant or shop as he does selling a $50 bottle. If that's true, DeMarco is an honest broker. His job is simply to find wine that you or I would want to drink. Because if you think about it, there are thousands upon thousands of bottles to choose from. Just picture the rows of bottles lining the shelves at every wine shop. You kind of, sort of, maybe think you want to buy a Merlot. So do you pick the one with the pretty flowers on the label? Do you go with the one that Robert Parker, the high priest of wine ratings, awarded a lot of his Parker points to? Or, like a lot of people, do you let price be your guide? If you believe even a little bit in the free market, you'd have to think that expensive wines cost more because they taste better, right? Brian DeMarco wanted to know how much people were tasting the dollars when they drank an expensive wine. So, like Steve Levitt, he conducted a little experiment with some of the people who work for him. As DeMarco said, these were no amateurs. We did a, a, a tasting, a brown bag, and we had this exact same wine in both bags. 
And we told them that one bottle was a $50 bottle and to write their reviews. And we said another one was a $10 bottle to write their reviews. And, of course, they're both $20 bottles according to retail, what they would sell at any retail store. And then we reversed it. And we said now the $10 bottle is really the 50 And everyone liked the $50 bottle better <laughs> in both circumstances <laughs> because they perceived that the price they had, either they thought there's something they're missing when really they're like these wines are so similar. Yeah, but they're different, you know. And so a lot of people call. Two or three people said, "Is this the same wine?" And we, we said, "Well, that's for you to determine." And the more they thought about it, the more they intellectualized it, the more they decided there was differences to the wine. So this wasn't a wildly scientific experiment either. But to Brian DeMarco, the message couldn't have been clear. When people know a wine is more expensive or even think it is, it tastes better. Now, obviously, this idea doesn't apply just to wine. A house that costs $500,000 ought to be five times better on some level than a $100,000 house. The size, the construction, the schools, the neighborhood. So is a wine that costs $50 five times better than a $10 bottle? Or is it even better at all? Coming up, we go looking for hardcore empirical evidence that expensive wines actually taste better than cheap wines. And we look beyond price to prestige, to wine ratings, the awards, the whole shebang. Because if your wine or your whole wine list wins an award from a magazine like Wine Spectator, it's got to be good, right? Right? Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, package lists, and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and over 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Free Economics Radio is sponsored by Redfin. Whether you need to buy or sell a home or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin has got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours even the same day with a local Redfin agent. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents get you the best price possible for your home. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Marriott. Town Place Suites by Marriott has all the comforts of home. 
cook up a meal in a full kitchen, unpack and stay organized with the in-room Alpha closet system, plus bring your pet and have your best friend by your side. Town Place Suites by Marriott has all the amenities you need to feel at home during your stay. Find the comforts of home at Town Place Suites. Go there with Marriott Bonvoy. Swirl, sip, and spit. We're back with Freakonomics Radio from American Public Media and WNYC. Here's your host, Stephen Dupner. So tell me your name and kind of what you do or how you describe yourself. Uh, my name is Robin Goldstein. Um, I uh, write about wine and food. Uh, basically, uh, my book, The Wine Trials, has been my, I guess, principal outlet for writing about wine. Uh, but I've also been publishing academic papers on topics of taste um, from a cognitive perspective and an economic perspective, uh, usually co-authored with uh, colleagues from different academic fields. So I've been exploring the uh, neuroscience side of it a bit. I've been exploring kind of the behavioral side of it. Uh, and in particular, I'm interested in price signals and how uh, people's uh, knowledge of price affects their experience of wine uh, on the most basic sensory level. Now, first let me just ask, I- I've heard good things about um, this lovely little restaurant in Milan called Osteria L'Intrepido. You ever, you ever <laughs> been there? Uh, I've actually, uh, I've been to the restaurant, but it's actually located in my friend Giuliano's former apartment in Milan. Uh, the restaurant really, I wouldn't say it's great. Uh, mostly they serve leftover pizza, and their wine cellar consists mostly of uh, some uh, leftover bottles of Montepulciano d'Abruzzo from three weeks ago. But Meaning, uh, it's, meaning it's not really a restaurant, is it? It's an apartment. Um, so it's just an address, really. Osteria L'Intrepido doesn't exist. It's a fake restaurant that Robin Goldstein made up. Why? Well, it's a strange story. Goldstein's research and writing on wine made him skeptical about critics and awards. He believed that so-called experts were, at best, subjective, and that they carried way too much influence. He wondered about the awards that magazines, like Wine Spectator, gave to restaurants for their wine lists. Did an award like that really mean that the wines of that restaurant were excellent? So he invented Osteria L'Intrepido, or Fearless Restaurant. He created a fake menu, a fake website, and a fake voicemail message saying the restaurant was closed for vacation. As for the Osteria L'Intrepido wine list, Goldstein made that up too. He included several expensive wines that Wine Spectator itself had given bad reviews in the past. One of them was a 1982 Brunello di Montalcino which the magazine had given 67 points, or a D-plus rating, calling it barnyardy and decayed. He listed another vintage that Wine Spectator had reviewed as unacceptable, sweet and cloying, and smells like bug spray. Then off his application went, with the fake wine list and a real money order. My hypothesis was that the $250 uh, fee was really the functional part of the application. Uh, in other words, that the entire awards program was uh, really just an advertising scheme and that it was being fraudulently misrepresented as an exercise of expert judgment by Wine Spectator. I see. Now, was a little piece of you expecting that when you applied for this that they would send someone around to drink some of your wine or eat some of your food? 
Well, of course, that's the experiment, right? So I didn't know. I mean, I didn't. I wasn't uh, sure going into this that I would win an award. There were two questions being tested here. One was, uh, do you have to have a good wine list to win a Wine Spectator Award of Excellence? Uh, and the second was, do you have to exist to win a Wine Spectator Award of Excellence? Uh, and so I thought that it, it was quite possible that my experiment would fail. He didn't fail. I am calling from the Wine Spectator magazine in New York, calling to congratulate you and let you know that your restaurant was selected as a Wine Spectator Restaurant Award winner. Uh, hopefully you did receive some information from us, um, but I'm calling to follow up and see if you might have an interest in publicizing your award uh, with an ad in the upcoming issue which comes out in August as we do have a lot of international business travelers who may be coming to Milan. Um, and what was the name of the award that you won for your fictional restaurant? The Wine Spectator Award of Excellence. So congratulations. That's awesome that you're a winner. Um, Thank you. I too could be a winner presumably? Uh, yeah, if, you, if, if your wines were bad enough. Thank you so much. Have a great day. <laughs> Bye-bye. In August of 2008, a new organization called the American Association of Wine Economists held its annual conference in Portland, Oregon. That's where Goldstein revealed his fake award of excellence. The press drank it up. From the New York Post, wine mag humbled by hoax. According to the L.A. Times, Wine Spectator was now drinking a hearty glass of blush. Wine Spectator vigorously defended its award system. The executive editor said the magazine never claimed to visit every restaurant and that it did its due diligence on Osteria L'Intrepido, looking over its website and calling the restaurant, but that it kept reaching an answering machine. Grazie. Robin Goldstein, for his part, was convinced. The wine system was fundamentally flawed. If a fake restaurant with a wine list that included bad, expensive wines could win an award of excellence from one of the most prestigious wine magazines in the world... Who are we supposed to trust? My takeaway is that uh, expert sources in the media are trusted too much and that, are, and that they're prone to abusing their positions of, of power uh, as a way of making money. Uh, so the phenomenon where an ad, what's really an ad, is posing as real expert, expert judgment is, um, is very problematic for consumers uh, because consumers really put trust in these magazines. Um, you know, we put trust in experts. There's so many fields out there that we don't know as much about as the experts do. And so we use experts as uh, an information intermediary, as a, as a proxy um, for good judgment and, and in an area that we don't know as much as the experts are supposed to. And when we, you know, when we trust experts too much and they sell their awards to entities that are really their customers, that's quite problematic. Robin Goldstein also had an academic paper to present at that conference of wine economists. The paper was called, Do More Expensive Wines Taste Better? If the Osiril Intrepido stunt was just a stunt, and if the Steve Levitt and Brian DeMarco blind tastings we heard about earlier were just unscientific tricks, well, Goldstein's paper was the opposite of that. It gathered up data from 17 blind tastings that Goldstein himself organized. The data included more than 6,000 observations from more than 500 people, from amateur wine drinkers to sommeliers and winemakers. He tested red wines, whites, rosés. The prices ranged from $1.65 a bottle, 
to $150 a bottle. It was as rigorous as you could get. And what did Goldstein learn? That overall, people liked expensive wines less than cheap wines. When you don't know what a bottle of wine costs, apparently you don't know how good it's supposed to taste. Even the most expert tasters could barely tell the difference between expensive wines and cheap ones. It's unsettling, isn't it? Buying a bottle of wine shouldn't be as complicated as buying a house. But thanks to the layers of experts between us and the grapes, we've got performance anxiety. Wine isn't supposed to be a drag. It's a celebration, a beloved recipe, civilization in a bottle. You are drinking the handcrafted fruit of some farmer's vines that may go back hundreds of years, grown under the same sun that's been shining for billions of years. Wouldn't it be nice to drop the pretense, to set aside the ratings and price, and just drink? Ryan DeMarco, the wine importer, that's what he's really after. Who are we to to tell the Connecticut housewife that that oaky Chardonnay she's been slamming down for the last 10 years from California, she's not deriving pleasure from that. She surely is. But there's just there are so many other things. It's like limiting your 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 um your musical notes to only playing F and C notes the rest of your life. It's only eating cheeseburgers and hamburgers, you know, the rest of your life. If you want to try other foods and other cultures and other things, that if opening this bottle of Rioja somehow takes you to Spain and makes you feel like you want tapas, then it's done its job. And whether it's a $15 bottle or a $30 bottle is irrelevant at that point. I mean, that, then you're getting into nuances of, of, of good and great. But I think the bottle of wine is the ability to, tra- to either change your day uh, if from from an alcoholic standpoint, uh, you know, getting to a certain point where you're like, okay, this is this is, or for people like myself in the trade, it's it's something you have with food. I mean, growing up in an Italian household, we weren't drinking great wine, but to me, wine wasn't alcohol. Wine was Carlo Rossi in a jug that was poured in the juice glasses from my grandfather, and that was what you had with dinner. Drinking to me was Budweiser and Jack Daniels, you know, you know, sneaking out on Friday night to go drink. Let me just ask you, we're sitting here in a, uh, a radio studio in downtown New York with kind of mucus-colored sound padding and artificial light, and there's basically <laughs> nothing good about this space. There's no air, there's nothing. But, Soulless. But transport me for a minute. So tell me, Brian, the room that you would like to be sitting in right now and the food that you'd like to be eating right now and most of all what the wine is with that food and what that wine tastes like to you i think a crisp uh sancerre would be perfect right now and uh with some sort of croque monsieur uh and maybe um i don't know a salad with a little vinaigrette and would be kind of perfect you know not too decadent but definitely has its place and and uh, maybe have a backup bottle on ice your table got room for another guy there uh, you're sitting with me right now. <laughs> this this pressed the wood table is. I think it can hold uh, an ice bucket. I'm pretty pretty confident. Freakonomics Radio is produced by WNYC, American Public Media, and Dubner Productions. Our producers include Andrew Gartrell, whose taste guided this podcast, and Susie Lechtenberg, who views life as a blind tasting. 
This podcast is mixed by David Herman, who never touches the stuff. Our executive producer is Colin Campbell. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, and you'll get the next episode in your sleep. You can find more audio at FreakonomicsRadio.com. And as always, if you want to read more about the hidden side of everything, go to Freakonomics.com. Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador. Pilots know that weather factors like storms, turbulence, and icing can turn routine flight into a challenge. But what if you had satellite-delivered weather data giving you the full picture of what's around you? With SiriusXM Aviation, get coast-to-coast high-resolution weather info, all without altitude limitations or line-of-sight restrictions. Fly confidently knowing you have the best information available to make decisions in flight. Visit SiriusXM.com aviation to learn more. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.